God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Father, as we gather this day around your word, would these words not fall from our minds that you are with your people. Though Satan and his minions may rage, though the earth give way, you are steadfast and true. You are a mighty fortress. You are a refuge. And Lord, as we turn to Nehemiah this morning, uh, would you show us these great truths about how you are faithful and true for your people and your purposes then and now? In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome or welcome back to Nehemiah. We, uh, just a quick catch up of where we've been. We covered chapters one and two. Last week we saw Nehemiah in six months' time uh, go from uh, hearing about a situation in Jerusalem to being uh, in Jerusalem, leading a task force to build the walls of the city. Um, you can see the, the dates there in your notes. Um, it's, it's actually fairly amazing how quickly these things happened in Nehemiah's life. That uh, <clears throat> from, from really winter of 446 is where the chapter 1 begins, spring of 445, chapter 2, uh, we make our best guess that maybe uh, after he had permission to go, he spent a month getting things prepared, a couple months on the journey. So summer of 445, he shows up in Jerusalem. Um, and where we begin today, chapter 3, verse 1, we don't have an exact date for that. But what we do have is in chapter 6, verse 15, we have the exact date that the wall was finished and a statement that it took them 52 days. So we can do math. And lo and behold, we're, we're uh, back in late July um, is when... Uh, 
the time of the year that, that we're in chapter 3 right now. Um, and and uh, yeah, I've already given away the, the, the secret. They are going to get the wall done, and they are going to get it done quickly. Um, but I'll remind you that at the end of chapter 2, we found uh, Nehemiah and the, the, the builders, the leaders, being ridiculed, being jeered, being humiliated, being intimidated by Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem. The enemies of God's people and God's work are gathering. Um, and, and we'll see that just continue more and more this day. Um, so, yes, chapter 2, verse 20 where we ended last week, this is Nehemiah replying to the accusations and the uh, ridicule of the enemies. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. And if, with the economy of words that we have from Nehemiah, next sentence is about building. Um, and uh, chapter 3 is one of those chapters where you wonder if you want to read the whole thing or not. It's, it's almost like watching a, uh, a train wreck about to happen when you see somebody trying to read these names. <laughs> so we're not going to go through the, the whole thing head to toe, but, uh, but we'll hit parts of this. Chapter 3 is all about the work on the, on the wall. Uh, you have an, a, a, a little picture there that gives you an idea of, of what that looked like. Nehemiah gives about 40 sections of the wall, just descriptions of, of 40 bits of the wall, the work that was being done. He starts uh, at what's called the Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate, if you're uh, uh, familiar with the Gospel of John, is mentioned in the Gospel of John. Uh, the Sheep Gate was probably named such because that's where they would have brought in, it was very close to the temple, would have brought in the, the lambs for sacrifice. Um, and uh, so appropriate name. We think it at, that it's at the northeast corner of what the walls would have been at that time. And uh, Nehemiah just takes us all the way around the city in a counterclockwise fashion. In case I stuck the word, the, the letter CCW in your notes, that's what that means, <laughs> counterclockwise. Uh, or anti-clockwise if you've been trained in Europe. So, um, but we see verse, verse uh, 1 in chapter 3, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. And we go to the very last verse of chapter 3, uh, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. So Nehemiah gives us just a little tour all the way around where the work was going on. Um, and uh, one of the things about the, the, the diagram I want to point out is the number of question marks on it. Um, and uh, one of the commentaries that I read uh, described this chapter as a careful description giving important details uh, much of which today is, remains unintelligible. <laughs> so, and, and, it's, and it's just a matter of archaeology, right? And, and the, that said, and that's true, that said, 
every bit of archaeological evidence that, that continues to be found just, just continues to corroborate what we see here. We should not be surprised by that, but we should be reminded of the faithfulness of God's word over centuries and centuries. Um, but uh, so that's, that is what we have in this chapter. Uh, one of the things, uh, the nature of this, this work that strikes me that I, that I think is, is, is a fascinating bit is the wide variety of folks involved in this work. I already pointed out in, in uh, verse 1, the high priest himself you know, has rolled up his sleeves, as it were, uh, and uh, set aside his ephod and, and, and away he goes working on the wall. Um, priests are also mentioned in uh, verse 22 um, that, that after him, the, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. Levites are also in the list here. Verse 17, after him, the Levites repaired. Reum, son of Bani, next to him, and on and on we go. Temple servants, are listed in verse 26. And the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. Um, men of surrounding towns are listed. Um, in verse 2, we have the men of Jericho, lo and behold. In verses 5 and 27, we have the men of Tekoa, uh, although in verse 5 we, we understand that uh, the nobles of Tekoa were too noble, as it were, to uh, join the, the work. Next to them, the Tekoites uh, repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. That's really about the only um, indication we have of, of dissension at, at, in this chapter. Uh, verse 7, we have the Gibeonites of all people. Next to them repaired Melatia, the Gibeonite. We learned about Gibeonites just last week, right? From Joshua 9. And here we are, a mm, thousand years later, give or take, 950 years later, there's Gibeonites working on the wall. Not just cutting wood and carrying water, but yeah. Um, there are local rulers mentioned throughout here. Um, verses 9, 12, 14 through 19. 14 through 19 is a good run of this. Uh, Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of, on and on. And, and away we go, verse 15. We have another gentleman who's a ruler of a district. And, it, and so uh, there are folks who have... Uh, you know, real authority and titles and, and some importance, at least, provincially, uh, parochially, that are, that are involved in this work, that are, that are ready to help, other than those Tekoite nobles. We don't exactly know what their issue was. Um, we have goldsmiths, verses 8 and 31, uh, working on the wall. Um, probably a little out of their expertise, right? Working on a, I assume being a goldsmith was fine motor skill work, generally. And working on the wall meant 
lifting a big rock and putting it on another rock and putting some mortar in and some plaster and, and making sure that it wasn't going to fall over. Um, we have perfumers in verse 8 um, working, working on the wall. That sounds to me like that's way out of their wheelhouse, but, you know, God bless, God bless the perfumers for jumping in, right? And merchants, verse 32, uh, which I'd already read. Even, in verse 12, there it is, next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. So there we are. Uh, there, are, there are those who would wish to spiritualize that and say that daughters means little towns around Jerusalem. Probably is just his daughters. Probably don't have to overthink. <laughs> what, who, what, what this is describing? It's his daughters. Um, so a wide variety of folks here. Probably not an exhaustive account uh, because we have um, several mentions in here of folks doing another section. Uh, Merimoth would be a great example. I find him in verse 4. There he is. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, repaired. And then we go over to verse 21. After him, from the previous verse, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section. And there's a couple others like that where we don't have the description of the first section, right? So Bob was working on another section, but we don't have the verse that says Bob's first section. So again, just to say that this may not be exhaustive full list, but, but it's a fascinating list of, of folks. Um, verse 13 uh, are the... Uh, the, the show-offs, Hanun and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it, set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits. Um, so 1,500 feet. Uh, they get the prize for, for you know, going a, a quarter or a third of a mile uh, of this, this whole thing that may have been between a mile and a half and two, two miles all the way around. Um, but... Uh, an amazing bit. One other note. Well, lots of notes here. Uh, verse, verse 17. Notice at the end of it, again, won't, won't give you all these names, but, it, but the ruler of the half, half the district of Keilah repaired for his district. So there's, there's some indication there that Nehemiah, as he set up the work, probably said, okay, um, all of you districts, think suburbs, rough uh, equivalent, uh, all, all of you districts around Jerusalem, you, you each have a responsibility here. And so that, that may be what, what we see folks involved in that way. Uh, there are all sorts of references to existing things in the wall, gates and pools and steps and buttresses and homes and tombs and gardens, many of which we just don't know where they were exactly, but again, archaeology continues to uncover these things, and it's a fascinating bit. Um, perhaps the the take home from from this chapter, uh, well, 
one of the things is, first of all, that, that out of this disparity of people uh, with, with all sorts of different backgrounds and interests and skills that God brought together through Nehemiah's leadership, but God brought together a unity, if, if not a uniformity, at least a unity of purpose and work. And it, it should remind us, it should point us uh, at least towards a couple uh, New Testament references that, that remind us as the people of God of our unity. Um, so briefly, um, let's take a peek at those. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 6. Paul writes, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul again writing, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so, not to, not to over-spiritualize a, a chapter in Nehemiah where, where he's just really listing the work that's being done, but it still should just be a reminder of, of the unity of God's people in, in, in all things. All right. We're on to Nehemiah 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a, a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah... The Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Um, so the opposition now is becoming stronger, more vocal. Uh, it is, uh, we see Sanballat and Tobiah um, now directly opposing the work rather than just the presence of Nehemiah coming on behalf of the people. Um, jeering, scorn, contempt, ridicule. Uh, Sanballat is seeking to win his own people to, to the, the opposition. He's in the presence of his own folks, the, uh, the Samaritans. Um, he's taunting with these questions. He's also seeking to uh, deflate or humiliate, dishearten the builders. Is he's speaking in front of uh, the, the builders as well. It didn't look this up, but reminiscent of 
who was the guy from, from uh, you know who I'm talking about, right, from the king who was sent and he was speaking at the wall in the, in the language of the people and they told him to not do that, but he continues. He's a Hezekiah guy, but all right, you'll, you'll find it. But, but there's a little reminder there. Sorry, shouldn't even brought it up if I wasn't ready to talk. Rabshakeh is his name, now it comes to me. But Sorry? Uh, that's not quite right. But anyway, I think Rabshakeh was his name. But you'll, anyway, on we go. Uh, and Tobiah, right, it, you get the point of the taunt. If a fox jumps up on the wall, it's going to fall over, right? A fox is small. Right, so that's that's the that's the point here. Um, part of what they are understanding as opposition is, as we we read in the end of chapter two, Nehemiah points out to them they have they have no legal right to stop this work, and and now the frustration is growing, right, and uh, and so they're they're just looking for new ways to humiliate to to dishearten the people. Let me read verses 4 and 5 because we immediately get another prayer from Nehemiah, right? In the midst, in the midst of this narrative, um, we don't get Nehemiah's words back to them uh, like we did in chapter 2, verse 20, but we get Nehemiah's words to God. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. All right, so we have stumbled across imprecation <laughs> right here in Nehemiah. Um, and uh, Nehemiah is calling out for God to bring justice to their enemies, to his enemies. Um, we can get a little itchy when, when we read those things and we think of, at the same time, Jesus calling us to uh, love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. And we don't exactly know how to, to just get all that to, to plug together. And I'm certainly not going to answer every one of your questions because I haven't answered all of my own. Uh, however... It is clear, there are a few things that are clear here. Nehemiah is not seeking his own personal vengeance. So he is, he is following Romans 12. He is leaving room for God's judgment, God's justice. Um, he is not attacking them directly. He is just calling on God to be just. He is, he is not seeking that because he was, uh, his own personal being was attacked but he says uh, in verse 5, they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Um, so even in verse 4 where, where Nehemiah says we are despised, Nehemiah understands that what really that means is you, Lord, are being despised. And this should not be. Um, So, there's a lot of things we could 
uh, take, a, take a look at. I, I will we'll take a look at one of them, all the way to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. These are the, 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 this is the fifth of the seven seals. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And that is, that is a fascinating thing to hear from glorified saints. Glorified saints who have no sin at this point in their lives. They're, they're no temptation to sin, and they are calling for God's justice on their blood. Uh, that's just that's an interesting observation if you just sort of play yourself back through um, what what we have have seen here in Nehemiah, what we've talked about in Luke. And again, I don't I don't pretend to have the 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 right needle to just stitch all that together and tell you exactly what how this is best understood. Um, the best uh, response that I came up with in studying this was from John Piper, uh, who, who said that this is not a, a sinful, personal vengeance, but a reliable expression of what happens to God's enemies. That, that what's, what's being stated here, um, turn back their taunt on their own heads, give them up to be plundered, I'm back in Nehemiah, sorry. Um, give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you in the presence of the builders. These are just the natural uh, things, the, 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 the reliable outcome of, in the lives of the unrepentant. And that is, that is what Nehemiah is praying, that, Lord, be just with the unrepentant. So that is, uh, that is, a, that is a topic that could take us several weeks. Um, but that's, that's a little bit of a, a, a skim into that. Um, all right. And again, with his economy of words, um, Nehemiah goes to verse 6. <laughs> After his prayer of imprecation, says, so we built the wall. <laughs> so we built the wall. Off we go. Um, and the, the wall was joined together at half its height. For the people had a mind to work. We, we'll see this over and over again, but, but Nehemiah is just a, a fabulous example of praying and depending upon God and acting. Right? It's, not, it's not one to the exclusion of the other. It is, it is not, again, like I said last week, I, I hesitate to even say merely praying as though prayer was a small thing. But, it, but it's not prayer in isolation. It's not prayer and then, you know, sit back and have a cup of coffee and just see what God does. Um, nor is it driving forward in, in your strength uh, prayerlessly. It is both. 
In verses 7 through 12, the threats are ramped up um, in two different ways. Uh, Verses 7 through 9, there is a physical threat that comes, and this will sound familiar uh, from Joshua 9 as well. I'll start in verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites, okay, so now there's, there's just more and more, they keep more and more every time, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry, and they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That will sound a lot like Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 from from last week, the people, the enemies of God, threatened, plotting together to fight against uh, the people of God. Verse 9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Again, we we see both, uh, prayer and action. Verses 10 through 12 uh, become psychological warfare. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. These are are rumors that are being spread through through the, and propaganda through the the workers um, and and to to seek to dishearten them. Um, Verse 11 the enemy said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Verse 12, at that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times you must return to us. And the picture here is that it is unsafe in the city. It is unsafe to be working at the wall. Come home. Come, come home to the suburb. Don't, don't be there anymore. So there's, there's growing fear that is rising up, return to us. The, the wives and children are saying in the suburbs, get, get away from where it's dangerous. Um, and what we have in um, much of the, re- the remainder of the chapter are then uh, steps that Nehemiah put in place as a response to, to these growing threats. In verses 13 and 14, we won't read all of this, but in verses 13 and 14, there are armed guards that are placed around the city strategically. Uh, I will point out again, in verse 14, an encouragement that comes from Nehemiah. He says to the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And again, not to beat this thing to death, but there it is. Remember the Lord and fight. Both. Remember the Lord and fight. Verse 16, uh, Nehemiah has taken a portion of his guards and uh, transferred them to be armed guards, so they stand holding spears and bows, shields, all day long from from before sunup to to sundown. Verse 17, the burden bearers, these would be people who would be hauling rubble away, hauling mortar and plaster mix in, maybe dragging a stone. They have been 
converted in such a way so that they can do their work with one hand and have a weapon in the other hand. And a weapon might have just been a small stone. We just don't know. But, but, but uh, they, they have that mindset as they work. The builders in verse 18 uh, have their sword strapped on their side. And in verses 18 through 20, Nehemiah uh, now assigns a trumpeter to be ready that wherever the work, wherever, wherever an attack may come, the trumpeter would be ready to sound his trumpet and that the people would be ready to rally. Verse 22, the workers then also stayed inside the city overnight. So, so at, up to that point, they had been working all day, going home, working, coming home again. Uh, now they're staying inside the city. Just a practical thing to keep them safe as they don't journey back and forth and also to avoid the infiltration of the enemy who might seek to, to join in. And in uh, all the way in verse 23, all the way to uh, Nehemiah saying, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. So even, even while they were sleeping, they were just... They were ready at a moment's notice. Um, back in verse 20, again we have one more time. Um, this, is, this is Nehemiah speaking about the trumpeter. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So, one more time, confidence that God will fight for us, but still a call to rally, call to action. So that's chapter 4, which is external opposition. Chapter 5 now brings us to internal uh, opposition or really oppression uh, that, that is stated. Let me read the first five verses. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said... With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet... We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So in the midst of, of this, God is very clear to let us know that, that uh, his chosen people remain a sinful people as well. And Nehemiah is now to address uh, the issues that are seen internally. Um, this great outcry is, is against their own Jewish brothers. We have three groups of folks. Um, it appears the first group simply can't uh, afford to buy grain. Uh, and, uh, and they're trying to figure out how to get that accomplished. Um, a second group of, were farmers who had mortgaged their fields um, in order to buy food to survive, and a third group had borrowed money to pay the king's tax. Um, and uh, they had 
also sold their own children into debt slavery. And it seems along with also having mortgaged their fields because in verse 5 they say, it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So this is, this is a dire situation. They, uh, and, and a famine is mentioned as, as an underlying cause here. But what is really at the core is how those in Jerusalem of means were treating or mistreating those who were in trouble. Uh, that's, I mean, all, all, all things aside, famine and, 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 and borrowing and this and that aside, the, the real issue is this great outcry against other Jews, their brothers. <clears throat> so verses 6 and 7, um, we need to see Nehemiah's response. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So his first response is to go directly to them. His now, now we know, at least we have a title, nobles and officials of, of who these folks are who are um, abusing uh, the, the poor among them. You are exacting interest each from his brother and I held a great assembly against them. So, before we go further, Nehemiah has gone directly to them, and now he's holding a great assembly. An inference from that is that perhaps his conversation directly with them held no fruit, that, that there, was, there was no response. And so, you can even see a, a biblical pattern here of, all right, now we go to a larger group and we talk about the... With, with everyone what is going on. I said to them in verse 8, we as far as we are able have bought back our Jewish brothers you have sold, who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Now there's lots of pronouns in there. I'm trying to understand what, what he's saying. His point is you are, you are selling your own brothers into slavery, and this is not right. It's as simple as that. He says, he, Nehemiah is reaching back to much from Deuteronomy, from Exodus, from Leviticus, where the goal was to free your brother, to buy them back from slavery. This is what God has been doing over and over throughout his redemptive history, is freeing his people from slavery, literally, spiritually, and Nehemiah's charge against these nobles and officials is, listen, what, what we are supposed to do, you are doing just the opposite. You are enslaving your brothers. Whether it's, whether it's literal debt slavery, whether it's enslaving them through the charging of interest on debts, uh, taking, taking away their very means of life, of ownership of, of fields and vineyards. He's He's calling them out as doing the very opposite of what it is that, that God has called his people to do uh, one for another. So, let's go back and take a peek at just a, a, a bit of this in Leviticus 25. It helps, 
it helps understand the seriousness of what's going on. Leviticus 25 starts with the Sabbath year, the year of Jubilee, uh, redemption of property. <clears throat> and then we come to verse 35. So now just as, as we read these verses, remember what we've seen in Nehemiah here already. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you're not supposed to mortgage his field and, and put his children in slavery. You shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Right, so the responsibility is to uphold and to support and to care for those who cannot care for themselves. Verse 36 and 7, Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. Ah, there we, now we see this is, this is not just moral behavior one with another. This is a response of a life that is fearing God. All right? No interest, take no profit. <clears throat> you shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit, right? No price gouging on water during a hurricane. Knock it off, right? Um, this is what God's people are called to, one with another. Yeah. Uh, verses 39 and following. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker, as a sojourner. Verse 44. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you, after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. And then verses 47 through 49 uh, speaks again of redeeming. Uh, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers or his uncle, his cousin, on and on it says. So here's, here's exactly in these last verses that I just read what Nehemiah is referring to. He says, listen, God has told us that, that our job is to buy our brothers back from strangers and sojourners as, as the situation allows. And you are doing just the opposite. You're pushing them into slavery. There's a whole ton more we could talk about slavery. We won't. But, uh, but the point here is care and love and consideration one for another in the household of God. Um, so back to Nehemiah. He rebukes these men uh, in, in verse 9. He calls them to repent. Um, middle of verse 9, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, 
um, Nehemiah admits that he as well, he and his people are, are part of lending, but, but we assume probably in a just fashion. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. So Nehemiah admits we're lending money as well, but he probably is not exacting interest since that's the very thing that he's chewing out the nobles and the officials for. Um, he calls them in verse 11 to restore that which has been taken. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So he calls them to return property title to the owners, um, all the interest that has been charged, and then to, um, to uh, forgive the debt altogether. Uh, the folks take an oath in uh, verse 12, and then uh, Nehemiah kind of goes visual prophet on them with his robes, and right, so they, they, in their robes, they had, often they would take things and, and, and they would tuck it in their belt, right, and the thing would flop over the side, and so what, what Nehemiah does is he loosens his belt and he shakes out his robe and, and all the stuff that would have been attached to his belt just goes tumbling down to the ground, and, and his point is, if you... Well, let me just read it. So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So it's, it's a very Jeremiah-ish sort of move to, to visually put in front of the people uh, God's uh, judgment on those who are not going to be faithful in this promise. The last bit we have then in chapter 5 is Nehemiah describing... <clears throat> other characteristics of his governorship, uh, that while he was there, um, he didn't take advantage of, of all the things that could have been rightly his. So there was a food allowance that he did not take advantage of. He did not lay taxes on the people. Um, he didn't just sit in royal leisure, right? He's working on the wall uh, alongside with the people. He did not, they did not acquire land and uh, in verse 17, talks about that, that Nehemiah uh, supported a large group of people, 150 people at his table every day. And it appears that he funded all of this himself. Had his own butcher shop going on to, to feed all these people. So you can imply that, that being a cupbearer wasn't a bad gig financially. That, that Nehemiah must have, have uh, been a fairly wealthy guy to begin with to to come and just, just decide to fund all of this himself when he had the full right to uh, require of the people of Jerusalem as their governor the, uh, the funding of those efforts. What you need to see is that this is not just Nehemiah being altruistic, being a wonderful man, but that in verse 15... He describes the former governors, and then as we get near the end of that verse, it says, even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. So that, that same theme is there all the way back from Leviticus 25, 
of how we treat one another. It is the, it is the fear of God, not because we're all wonderful people, one with another, um, but that we seek to please God in how we live one with another. Finally, in verse 19 of chapter 5, Nehemiah again prays, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. That maybe sounds selfish right on the very surface of it, but Again, Nehemiah is just honest and frank, and, and he's not asking for anything for today. He is looking forward to his reward in the very same way that his earlier imprecatory prayer looks forward to the judgment of the unrepentant. Nehemiah is, is just merely laying out the truth that he already knows about God's good rewards for his faithful people. Yeah, for those whom, whom he has... Uh, placed his love upon. So, very quick wrap-up of where we've been. Um, the, let's not forget the unity of God's people uh, through a variety of purposes and gifts. Um, again, over and over again, the uh, trusting in God and acting. We'll see this more as we continue on, but we just saw it three or four times here through, through the day, uh, just in these chapters. Remember and fight, rally and God will fight for us, pray and build. Um, external and internal opposition will, will exist. Uh, it always will exist against God's work, but, but God's work will not ultimately fail. I still have a whole bunch more on that that we didn't finish last Sunday. We're not going to finish today, but I'm just, I'm just going to keep dragging those pages along and we will get to it. Or I'll just have it memorized by the time that, that we're done with this. Let's pray. God, you are good. You do good. And we see your faithfulness even in this, the simple narrative of building a wall of people uh, being drawn together for your glory, for their own joy, for their own good. And God, would, would we see um, that, would you grant that in our own lives, that we would live in your fear, the fear of you, and that we would seek the good of your people in all things. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.